three this morning. As you see in your bulletin, it says three, one through nine. We're not going to get that far. Moving into Galatians 3 and 4, Paul is moving from his defense of himself and the defense of his gospel, and he's going to begin to lay out some of the theology of the gospel. The next two chapters are some rich theology of what Paul means when he preaches the gospel of justification by faith alone. As he moves through these next two chapters, he's going to begin to unfold and begin to lay out and begin to show us exactly what that means. And then as we move into chapters 5 and 6, we're going to get the practical implications, the practical outworkings of what it means to have faith in the gospel. So today we're going to look at the first five verses of chapter 3. You have a handout in front of you. There will be points up on the screen. There's scriptures at each point. Um, so we will read the word and then we will begin. Galatians 3, 1 through 5. O oh, you foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing the faith? Are you so foolish? Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Did you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? Does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing, by faith? How many of you have ever started a letter or started a sentence by calling the people that you're writing to, you foolish Galatians, or you foolish whoever? And then again, three sentences later, are you so foolish? And I imagine for some of us that may seem a little bit harsh to hear Paul call the Galatians foolish. But keep in mind that Paul's not writing into a vacuum. He's not writing into a situation where he's just calling people foolish for the sake of calling people foolish. He's addressing a group of individuals who are using by what the word foolishness means here, they're not using their reasoning. They're not thinking about what they're about to do. So as we think about that, let's think about what they're not thinking about, if you can follow that. They're not thinking about the practical implications of what it would mean for them to accept that they need to be circumcised in order to truly be Christians. Remember, I said this isn't being said in a vacuum. This is coming right on the heels of Paul saying that if you take this, if you think your righteousness comes from something other than Christ, if you go to the last verse of chapter 2, he says Christ died for no purpose. That's the practical implications that they are about to take hold of if they accept circumcision. So he's calling them foolish because they're not thinking. This is used in a sense of being mindless, not marked by the use of reason. So in 221, Paul says, if righteousness were through the law, through their in their case, through circumcision, then Christ died for nothing. But I want you to see in the rest of verse 1 that it's not as if the Galatians didn't have any idea of what Christ had done on the cross. Because at the end of verse 1, he says, It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. 
Paul here is not saying that the Galatians, the people that he's talking to, were at the cross when Christ was crucified. That's not what Paul is saying. He's not saying that these Galatians actually saw in person the crucifixion. What Paul is saying here is that the Galatian believers had heard in person, either in a public setting like this or in a private one-on-one evangelism ministry that Paul might have had, they heard the gospel directly preached. So these believers are not turning from something that they had heard in a whisper-down-the-lane type of thing. They're not turning from a message that they had heard that they thought was just town gossip, whether they should believe it or not. Paul is reminding them that they had heard firsthand the gospel of him, of Christ crucified. But not only did they hear the gospel of Christ crucified, but given the language in other parts of the letter, it appears as if they had already accepted it. And by outward appearances, placed their faith in Christ. In chapter 1, verse 6, Paul is astonished that they are quickly deserting him who had called them in the grace of Christ. And they're turning to a different gospel. So they knew the gospel, they understood the gospel. It's possible that they accepted the gospel, at least by all outward appearances. They understood what it meant for them that Christ had been crucified. They understood it. But here they're on the brink of turning from it. In 4.9, Paul writes, But now that you have come to know God, or rather, to be known by God, how can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world, whose slaves you want to become again? See, this is in the middle of that theology again where Paul is working out the practical implications of what it means for a gospel that is justification by faith alone and what the Galatians are looking to slip back into of adding works of the law to it. But can you hear in Paul's language, he's saying, you understand this, you know this, you are not dumb. But yet in verse 1 he calls them foolish, and in verse 3 he calls them foolish again. So do you see why Paul is using this harsh language? He's not being mean for the sake of being mean. It's similar to what we talked about for those of you who were in Sunday school. He is shepherding his flock that is among him. He is exhorting them with the word of God. He's using strong language to try and wake them up to their acting foolishly by not thinking about what it is they're doing and believing. But I also want you to see that Paul is not placing this directly at and only at the feet of the Galatians. He says, right after calling them fools, who has bewitched you? Right in the middle of verse 1, Paul asks that question. And he gives the idea of who has cast a spell on you. Not by any stretch of the imagination believing that there's divination involved, or that there's using of witchcraft or spell, casting a spell in the literal sense. But he says... Or he's implying that these false teachers have so mesmerized the Galatians, they've so used eloquent language and really good speech, carefully crafted rhetoric, to lead them from the truth of the gospel. Who has bewitched you? Who has come in and told you these very plausible things that you're not thinking about? And we shouldn't be surprised at all about this, because as we read downstairs in Acts 20, 28 through 30, when Paul was speaking to the others at Ephesus, he tells them, pay careful, pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made yourselves overseers, to care for the church which he obtained with his own blood. For I know that after my departure, the fear of the Lord among you. 
not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw the disciples after them. Paul understands what's going to happen. The devil doesn't want to lose. The devil's not going to let Christ gain ground if he can, if he can help it. So as these teachers are moving in here, it's the devil pushing his false teachers into the church and saying, yeah, Paul was close to being right, but he's not really right. You need to add this to the law. But what the Galatians aren't thinking is by adding that to the gospel, they're deserting the gospel. They're giving into the false teaching and thus proving themselves not to be true believers in Christ. In Ezekiel 13, God to the prophet condemns the false prophets of Israel. And in verse 9, God says, My hand will be against the prophets who see false visions and who give lying divinations. They shall not be in the council of my people, nor be enrolled in the register of the house of Israel, nor shall they enter the land of Israel. And you shall know that I am the Lord your God. False teaching is no joke. We need to be thinking. We need to be paying attention to what's being told. And that's the first point that I'm making out of verse 1. We need to be thinking Christians. In Philippians 1, 9-11, Paul writes, It is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and discernment, so that you may approve what is excellent, and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ into the glory and praise of God. We're not called to be brain-dead walking through this Christian life. We need to think about what it is we're hearing, what it is we're believing, what it is that we are preaching and teaching. Again in Colossians 1, 9-10, And so from the day we heard, we have not ceased from praying you praying for you. And this is what Paul prays for. He asks that you may be filled with knowledge of his will, being God's will, in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. Why? So as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing good fruit in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God. The writer in Hebrews states this in a negative way. In Hebrews 5, 11 through 14, this is what the writer Hebrews says about those who are not thinking, who are not increasing in knowledge, who are not growing in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. He says, about this we have much to say. And it is hard to explain since you have become dull of hearing. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness since he is a child. But solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. We need to be thinking Christians because if we're not, it will be all too easy for false teaching to make its way into the church. Notice from the passage in Philippians and Hebrews also that both writers are concerned with knowledge and discernment. Discernment is the mental ability to understand and discriminate between two things. Discernment is really easy between truth and error. Discernment is very hard between truth and almost truth. And it's the truth and almost truth that we have to, we must come to understand and be able to distinguish between those two things. For the church in Galatia, they were being deceived into believing that works of the law were necessary to be truly justified by God. So what Paul does over the next three verses is he shows he asks the Galatians a series of rhetorical questions to help them think through their own Christian experience to show them that faith is all that is required. 
So over these next three verses, we're going to look at what is the role of faith in the Christian life, beginning with verse 2. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Paul knows the answer to this question. He wants the Galatians to think about it for themselves. As he's just finished telling them in 2.16 that nobody, no person is justified by works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. By works of the law, no one will be justified. And Paul later writes, in, and as Paul will later write in Romans 3, we are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Jesus Christ to be received by faith. But they believe, or they're on the brink of believing, that they need to accept circumcision to truly be saved. So the first point I'm making out of this is faith is what begins the Christian life. Now there may be some thinking, why do we keep rehashing this? Why do we keep going back to this? Yes, we know we're justified by faith. We know that it is by faith alone, by grace alone, through faith alone that we're saved. I keep bringing it up because the Word of God keeps bringing it up. Over the last 15 verses, we've heard it several times. Not quite 15. It's close. I can't do what's, I can't preach what's not in the Bible. And we're working through the book. Justification by faith continues to come up. So God knew in His providence that His people were going to need to hear this over and over and over again because we fall into the error of thinking that we're doing something to earn God's favor. We're doing something to receive God's grace when all we're doing is trusting in Him by faith. Faith begins the Christian life. My second response is I fear there are those here and outside of the church that may be resting in something else. They may be trusting and resting in the fact that at one point in time they went front to an altar. At one point in time they said a prayer or they've been baptized. There are a lot of people in the world who think that because they're a good person, because they were baptized at one time, because they went to a youth rally and raised their hands, that now they're saved. And my fear is that we don't quite understand what it is to place our faith in Christ and Christ alone. True justifying faith is a strong confidence in and a reliance upon Jesus Christ and Him crucified. And that's it. When you're resting and trusting in what Christ did, what He did on the cross for you and nothing else, you will be justified before God. And you will receive his spirit as a guarantee of your inheritance in heaven. Inheritance in heaven. If you look to your walking down an aisle, if you look to your saying a prayer, if you look to anything other than the perfect shed blood of Jesus Christ on the cross and his resurrection three days later, anything other than that, you do not have justifying faith. I'm sorry, but it's what scripture teaches. Justification is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. So he asks him the second rhetorical question, having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? So he's moving into the second line of his reasoning. And remember, he's calling them foolish because they're not using their reason. So Paul, over the course of several verses, is now going to use reason to show them how this works. He says, since we began the Christian life by the Spirit, which we know only comes through faith, is the flesh now perfecting us? 
Again, the argument that the false teachers in Galatians are putting forward is that while you have believed in Christ by faith, now there's more that you need to do. You were given the Spirit at that point, but you still really aren't Christians until you accept circumcision and follow the Mosaic custom and rituals. So through this line of reasoning, the second argument that Paul makes is faith is what perfects the Christian life. So first, faith begins the Christian life. Secondly, faith perfects the Christian life. The questions that need to be answered here are these. How do I, as a believer, access the grace of the Lord for my many needs? Where do I go, what do I do to connect with the real help he gives to sinners and sufferers here in this world? That's the question we're trying to answer with how is it that I access God's grace? How is it that God's grace transforms my life? How do I access that? That's the question that needs to be raised. And in Colossians 2, 16-23, Paul negatively answers it this way. He says, Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food or drink or with regard to festival or new moon or Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Let no one disqualify you insisting on asceticism and worship of angels, going on in detail about visions puffed up with reason by a sensuous mind, and the person that does that does not hold fast to the head, from whom the whole body, nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, grows with the growth, the growth that is from God. So you see what he's saying? He's saying you've begun the life by faith. You're in Christ by faith. Why are you looking to things outside of Christ? Why are you looking to rituals? Why are you looking to circumcision? Why are you looking to whatever it is you're looking to? In verse 20, he goes on, If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you were still alive in the world, you submit to regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, referring to things that all perish as they're used, according to human precepts and teachings. These indeed have an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity of the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. So we're still back to that same question I posed earlier. How do I, how do you, as a believer, access the grace of the Lord for our many needs? Where do you go? Where do I go? What do I do to connect with the real help that Christ gives sinners and sufferers here in this world? Positive answer, I believe, comes in what is called the ordinary means of grace. The first ordinary means of grace is what you're sitting under right now, the right teaching and preaching of the Lord God. It's called the ministry of the word. God has instructed his churches and his gospel ministers to devote themselves to the public reading of scripture, to exhortation, to teaching, 1 Timothy 4.13, and to preach the word of God, to be ready in season and out of season, to reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching, 2 Timothy 4.2. All I can do is tell you what's in the word of God. That's it. Trust me. I don't know psychology. I don't know the latest and greatest techniques of whatever the world has to offer. But I can go to Scripture and I can find you the answers and I can preach them to you and I can teach them to you. That is the ministry of the Word. It's all I've got. I'm sorry, but I'm not sorry. It's all you need. The second mean, ordinary means of grace is the right administration of the sacraments. The first being believer's baptism. We, who are, we are to make disciples of all nations, to baptize them in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. Those are the words of Christ. 
So it is in baptism that we align ourselves with Christ publicly. It is in baptism that we publicly proclaim our death to sin and new life in Jesus Christ. That's what we do in baptism. And baptism is only effective insofar as it covers, or as insofar as it follows a true profession of faith. You can profess faith in Christ, but it be a false profession. And baptism does nothing for you. Absolutely nothing. Baptism is only rightly administered after the right and true profession in faith in Christ. The second part of the right administration of the sacraments is communion. Communion rightly administered to believing members is to take, eat, this is my body, which is for you, and drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Do this as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup. Do this. As often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. I believe communion is reserved for believers in a covenant community, otherwise known as the membership of the church. I struggle with it open to anybody and everyone because Scripture teaches that if anyone eats the cup, eats the bread, or drinks the cup in an unworthy manner, is liable to condemnation upon himself. The only worthy manner to eat the bread and drink the cup is if you are in Christ. And the only way that I can know that you are in Christ is to sit down with you and have a conversation at a membership interview to bring you into the membership of the church and ask you, what is the gospel and who are you trusting in? Outside of that, I don't want to be the one liable or I don't want to be the one making you liable for eating and drinking condemnation upon yourself. So that's my belief about baptism. That's my belief about communion. The second order, the third ordinary mean of great, means of grace is prayer. A life of prayer, both public and private. First Timothy 2, 1-8, Paul writes, I urge that supplications... Prayers, intercessions, and thanksgiving be made. I desire then that in every place the men should pray, lifting up holy hands. Prayer is our lifeline. And I admit to not praying as much as I should. I admit to not praying as much as I might to pray, as much as much as I might to. I listened to a message this past week. Prayer is hard. We all know that. The pastor said it is easier to write a sermon on prayer, it is easier to preach a sermon on prayer than it is to pray over a message on prayer. I believe the last thing the devil wants is us on his knees because he knows when we're on our knees and our heart is in tune with God, we are tapped into the almighty, sovereign God of the universe who will do what he wants, when he wants, with whom he wants. The devil does not want that. So he will do anything and everything he can within his powers to keep you off your knees. He does it with me, and he does it with you if you're honest. Those extra 20 minutes, half hour of sleep in the morning look a lot better than getting out of bed when it's going to be five degrees in the morning going downstairs to pray. In an article titled The Ordinary Means of Growth, which is also The Ordinary Means of Grace, Lincoln Duncan has the following to say about the above list. These are the main ways God's people grow. We are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. But the instruments, the tools of God's grace to bring us to faith and grow us in grace are the word, prayer, and the sacraments. 
Nothing else we do in the church's program of ministry should detract from these central instruments of grace. And indeed, everything else we do should promote and coalesce with them. It is by the ordinary means of grace that the Christian will grow by faith more and more into the likeness of Christ. So how do I, how do you as a believer, access the grace of the Lord for my many needs? Where do I go? What do I do? I sit under the ministry of the Lord. I partake in the right administration of the sacraments, and I pray. And it is by those three things, through faith, that we as believers are perfected. Finally, faith is what sustains the Christian life. Paul says, did you suffer in vain? Does he who supplies the Spirit and work miracles? Does he do these by works of the law or by hearing with faith? 1 Thessalonians 4.3, Paul says that the will of God is our sanctification. It is the process of renewal and consecration by which believers are made holy through the work of the Holy Spirit. We've just seen that we receive that Holy Spirit by faith. That Holy Spirit works in our lives by faith through the ordinary means of grace that God has ordained. And now we're going to see that it is faith that sustains a Christian life. This process is not easy. It will require us to trust that the trials we face and the sufferings that we endure in this life are preparing us for a glory that will be revealed to us at the return of Christ. There are many among us who are suffering. Whatever your current struggle is right now, some of us are battling sickness, some of us are battling disease, some of us have just lost husbands and fathers. Families are in turmoil, are in turmoil, all the while the question of why hangs over everything. Why do I have cancer? Why did God take my loved one before I was ready to go? Why is there pain and suffering in the world and in families? And if we're all honest, we've asked these questions a hundred times, if not more, and most likely we have not come up with an all-satisfying answer. I know we haven't. Books are written every year. Why suffering? If there's a good God, why does he allow pain? You ask a theologian that question, and he will look at you dumbfounded because he doesn't have an answer. It is the paradox that is the Christian life. The only answer that I can give you, and I told you earlier, I don't have philosophy, I don't have any training in psychology. The only answer I can give you is a biblical one. But it relies on you accepting it by faith. I have Romans 8, 18 through 39 typed on your handout, I believe. And I'm going to close by reading it, but before I do, I want you to understand that this is a complex question. And it is one that has been asked and pondered by men a lot smarter than, smarter than I am. And none of them can come up with an answer. I can't tell you why some people suffer more than others. All I can do is tell you what the Bible says about the purpose of suffering. The purpose of suffering in God's people. And all I can do is pray that he will give you the faith necessary to believe it and trust that God is doing what he's promised to do. So here's Romans 8, 18 through 39. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing 
with the glory that has been that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revelation, for the revealing of the sons of God, for the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation will be groaning together in pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who will have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly as we eagerly wait for adoption as sons, the redemption of our lives. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope, for he who hopes for what he sees. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we have hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. Here's part of the promise. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. This is the sufferings of the present time that Paul's talking about at the beginning of the passage. All things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, that's the process of sanctification, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. For those whom he predestined, he also called. Those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own Son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also himself, how will he not also with him give us all things? Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is it to condemn Christ Jesus is the one who died? More than that, who was raised? Who is at the right hand of God interceding for us? What, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? So tribulation? Any of us going through tribulation and trials right now? Scripture teaches that can't separate us from the love of God. Shall distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. We've heard that before. We've all heard that before. It's faith in that passage that sustains the Christian life. I can't answer the question why someone wants to struggle. Other than to say, God is moving you from one degree of glory to the next, and that's how he's doing it. I can't answer why someone would struggle and suffer more than others. I truly can't. But Paul says that all of these things we are more than conquerors through Christ who loved us. None of us can separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Do you believe that? Because it's the faith that's going to sustain the Christian life. It's the faith that starts it. It's the faith that perfects it through the ordinary means of grace. And it's the faith that sustains it. Let's pray. Father, we come before you now recognizing that we are only saved by grace through faith in Christ alone. Father, we recognize that 
this faith, this Christian life can be hard because we struggle and we suffer and we don't understand. We don't know why. Father, I pray that we, as we go throughout the rest of this day, this week, this month, that we would know for certain that our faith is in Christ and in Christ alone. Father, that we're not looking to our prayer, but we're looking to the, what we said in that prayer, the decision that we made in that prayer, to place our faith in Christ alone. Father, if there's anyone who's not sure, if there's anyone who's looking to something else or thinks they're looking to something else, Lord, give them clarity. Give them the faith they need and the humility they need to repent and come to you and trust in Christ alone. To place